0: Do 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 Swift swimmer, comes swim by me. Swift swimmer, comes swim by me. It is Shark Week. Which means it's the media's job to find the scariest shark stories on the planet and convince you that if a shark isn't going to attack you personally, then a great white is probably going to steal your car or mug your best friend. But our motto here at Scana is that we are a podcast for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. And our guest is one of the world's top shark experts, Alessandro de Maddalena. And like sharks, I'm pretty sure he almost never sleeps. Because when it comes to sharks, he does it all. Author or co-author of 20 books, educator at pretty much every level, leader of shark expeditions, founder of the Shark Museum of South Africa, and a freaking brilliant photographer of marine life. Me, I'm Mark Lahren-Young, and this is Scanna, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment, and this week, sharks. And I've also written a couple of books about sharks, Sharks Forever, The Mystery and History of the Planet's Perfect Predator, Is officially for readers from about age 9 and up, but really it's for anyone. And then there is my subversive book on sharks, because it is a baby book. Big Sharks, Small World is for Human Babies, not Baby Sharks. And I wrote it to introduce babies to the idea that sharks are cool, not scary. And if you would like to help me share more stories about sharks, and orcas and octopus and all things eco and aquatic, please join Scannus Pod at patreon.com or become a paid subscriber to our Substack newsletter, which features bonus stories about all the animals and dishes we cover. You can also help us out just by sharing this episode and our newsletter and our posts. And that matters more than ever because we are pretty sure that Google and Facebook are going to declare us Canadian news, which means they are going to make our links disappear from their pages. If you're not in Canada, trust me, it's a thing. The Canadian government has basically gone to war with social media, anti-social media, Google, yeah. We are still on most social media outlets, even whatever they are calling Twitter this week. I think the official new name is Dumpster Fire. Could be wrong. Our Patreon patrons do get all sorts of cool perks, including bonus content from interviews, and sneak peeks at our ocean related projects, like our upcoming documentary version of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, and my next book, which is all about octopus. You can also support us by buying my books about whales and sharks, or my books that aren't about whales and sharks, which tend to be funnier or even better. Check out my audiobooks, since I produce and own all my own audiobooks, including The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, Orcas Everywhere, and my Leacock Medal winner, Never Shoot a Stampede Queen. Oh, Leacock Medal. Uh, Non-Canadian Translation, Uh, that's the award you get for writing the funniest book in Canada. None of my orca books or shark books are going to win that award. And now, an interview that is so long overdue. I first spoke to Alessandro de Madalena when I was researching sharks forever, and he gave me the scoop on the two orcas attacking great white sharks. Yeah, just two of them. But the Zoom connection between his home in South Africa and my home on Vancouver Island was too shaky to share on Scanna. So for our celebration of Shark Week, we tried again. And here we are with Alessandra Maddalena on the truth about swimming with sharks, the secret origins of the orcas who are hunting great white sharks in South African waters, the scoop on what really makes great whites great, and so much more. <laughs> To start off, can we talk about how you became interested in sharks in the first place? Because I, I don't naturally go Italy sharks. Like, how did that happen?
1: You know, that's that's the most common question I get, and uh, I think uh, the the answer is quite uh, funny and maybe I mean something that uh, a lot of people, a lot of kids can can uh, can feel uh, the same way. Because uh, I started to be interested uh, when I was still a child, a kid. And I was about uh, eight years old, uh, because at the time I was a fanatic of dinosaurs. I wanted to become a paleontologist, uh, so I was reading all the books about paleontology. I I was just crazy about it. My mom used to take me to the Natural History Museum in Milan, and we were uh, lucky that uh, we had such a beautiful museum with a very beautiful uh, uh, section uh, dedicated to to paleontology, the dinosaurs. And that uh, was the time also that I had uh, the first chance uh, to watch a documentary about great whites. And uh, it's funny because uh, today kids can watch this kind of documentaries all the time because we have uh, internet, we have uh, so many television channels. But uh, when uh, I was a kid, uh, (laughs) the television, there were very few channels. And also there was nothing such as internet so I, I watched this very first documentary, which uh, was filmed uh, in uh, 1977, because Jaws came out in 1975. So a couple of years later, there was this documentary that clearly was inspired uh, by the success of Jaws, because when Jaws came out, uh, it was the, it was the most successful movie ever. So many other people wanted to do something about great whites. So we had this documentary. It was made by an Italian filmmaker. His name was Bruno Vailati And uh, it was quite a dramatic documentary, a lot about the shark attacks or this kind of stuff, a lot of wrong information too. But uh, to me, it was inspiring because it was the very first documentary entirely dedicated on sharks. And at the end, there was a very beautiful part about Greg White because Bruno Vailati went to South Australia to Dangerous Reef uh, to film the documentary together with uh, uh, Ron Valerie Taylor and uh, Rodney Fox. Big uh, names in the, in the shark uh, world, especially in Australia, like Pioneers. So they had a smaller boat, a smaller cage, but at the end, there, were, there was a very important scene when the Great White uh, got uh, entangled in the rope uh, connecting the cage, to the boat, the shark was, was unable to, to get away, so I was kind of uh, almost dying because I couldn't swim anymore. And uh, just got more and more entangled in the, the rope. So at the end of the documentary, the question was, we uh, explained the great white are so dangerous, they kill people, etc. But uh, in this moment, what are we going to do? Do do we have do we have uh, really the, the the need to release these animals, dangerous animals? And the diver go out of the cage. They take the shark to the shore. They free the shark and they release the shark alive. And was a very very modern approach for the time, because at the time, especially after Jaws, everybody, even even many scientists, were thinking that uh, there were too many sharks. Many great wives. They were too dangerous and uh, it was uh, good. It was okay to kill them. It was like a common practice just to kill them, to get rid of them. So at the end of the documentary, the message was we don't have any right to kill animals for any reason, you know? That was very modern. And I got like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> struck by this, uh, this vision that uh, for the first time I was seen on the screen like a prehistoric animal, a great white, and it was still alive. So I changed my mind. I I didn't want to be a paleontologist anymore. I wanted to study shots. Can you talk about what's special about the great white? Because that's clearly been a passion for you. Yeah, you know that uh, it's funny because uh, uh, linked to the story I just told you, There was the fact, the first time I was uh, watching great white underwater, it was just magic. And the the strongest impression was that uh, he really was a prehistoric animal. So you can watch all the sharks. They are beautiful. The reason why I love sharks is just because they are like a perfect uh, artwork. I consider Mother Nature the greatest artist, you know, even when we take photos or we draw we paint, uh, everything we do in an artistic way is always inspi- inspired by nature, maybe directly and indirectly, but uh, I mean, we are just trying to imitate uh, the perfection of this great artist. I don't know if you want to call it God or Mother Nature, whatever. But uh, uh, to me, sharks, uh, the reason why I love them, are uh, just uh, perfect art. They are beautiful. That's the reason why I love them. And, uh, but plus, uh, when you're seeing a great wife, uh, just, uh, perfection plus something, uh, that, uh, inspire me like, uh, some, something divine, you know, just this strong, strong impression that leave you all the time. You are seeing some, like, some kind of, uh, uh, God, you know. I, and I mean, it sounds funny when you say it, but when you are underwater watching the animal, it, it makes just perfect sense. Plus, is a is a really prehistoric animal, and it look like a prehistoric animal. It's just a, an inspiring animal. That's 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 the reason why I love that.
0: That so shines through in your photographs because we met because I was doing the book on orcas, and I thought your orca photos were some of the most beautiful I'd ever seen. So and that was before, and I had no idea that it's not true.
1: It's not true because there are so many guys taking. Unbelievable pictures of orcas, especially today. Just think, for example, the photos that you co- could find uh, in the older days, like in the books uh, by Jacques Cousteau. These beautiful photos of uh, sharks, but clearly the technology was uh, so distant uh, from what uh, we achieved today, that today you look at those pictures and they look, uh, most of them, uh, most of them, they look like average if compared uh, to today level of perfection we have today, you know. So maybe my photos, in many cases, I consider them very good compared to the older days' photos. But today you have you have so many great photographers. By the way, I want to tell you that uh, I really enjoyed your books, your book about orcas, because uh, also, like, uh, uh, fill some kind of a gap. Because we have uh, beautiful books about orcas, very, very detailed, uh, let's say, made specifically for the expert, for the cytologist, and then we have some books that are uh, very popular, you know, very light. Your book uh, is right in the middle, so it's a book that uh, everybody can read and and enjoy, but also it's a book that uh, I'm sure that uh, people working on these animals can still appreciate and still learn something. So, And that's the kind of books that I like most. That's what I try to do with my own books. So this is why I like it so much.
0: Thank you. It's funny. I I can't believe you don't have the shark book yet because your photos are everywhere in my shark book. And I didn't realize this until last night when I was reading all the titles of your book. We kind of have a similar title because my book, the subtitle of my book is Nature's Perfect Predator and you
1: use the term perfect predator can you talk about what makes sharks the perfect predator yeah you you know when uh, you talk about uh, that book that uh, it's entitled sharks perfect Predators, you know uh, it's funny because uh, when I, I wrote the book huh, i i i used it actually a different title it was uh, diet and predatory tactics of sharks so for about uh, Almost two years, I was looking for a publisher, understand? And nobody wanted to publish that book because they were saying, uh, you know, it's too technical. Uh, It it may be good for the specialist, but uh, we don't think it's appropriate for the general public. Which was, uh, in my opinion, was not true because the book I write are always meant to be interesting, as I said, for the specialist. But also something that can be easily understood by everybody. So, and that book was uh, written with that idea in mind too. But you know what I did? I just changed the title, <laughs> nice. and then and and the picture on the cover. And then, in one month, I found a publisher. <laughs> and then, at that at that point, I also easily found a publisher. To publish the book in another language and then in another language. Sometimes just ridiculous, just really about marketing, changing the title, changing the picture on the cover. And I enjoyed anyway, writing that particular book, Perfect Predators, because really it's a book about the diet and predatory techniques of sharks. There's something also about the biology of sharks in general, but the focus is really 80% about what the sharks eat. Clearly, depending on the different species, the different location, you know, sharks are opportunistic predators, so uh, their diet will vary not only based on the specific species of sharks, but only depending on the exact location, the period of the year, they switch diet according to the area, according to the season, according, according on what is more easily available. Uh, given area, but uh, it's not even, it's not true as most people think they, everything, unless you're talking about the great white, the tiger shark, the bull sharks, but even those sharks uh, that have the most varied diet, they still have favorite prey item. While let's say that uh, all other species uh, tend to be more specific in their diet. But I try to describe all this kind of stuff in that specific book. Why do you think there's so much fear around sharks? Because I,
0: there was just the story that came out showing that we're around sharks all the time if we're in the water, and they are so not interested in us. And like to me, one of the biggest surprises looking into sharks and researching sharks is just how seldom they mess with us. So why do you think there is this wild fear like around sharks?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's nice that you mention it because, uh, uh, just a few days ago, you know, watching all these, uh, beautiful videos, uh, uh, filmed, uh, with, with some drone around the world, uh, and to see the sharks circling the surfboard, circling the swimmers, uh, batters, uh people on, on small boats, uh, kayakers. It's just a real, real thing because, uh, give, uh, proper idea to the common people about uh, how little sharks care about us. And specifically, great whites or tiger sharks are you know, the most dangerous species, uh, which we call the most dangerous species only because there are more attacks uh, that uh, can be uh, attributed to those species than to other species. But this doesn't mean that they bite or attack people often, you know, that uh, the number is it's so very little. So, when you look at the statistic, on average, about 10 people are killed in the entire world by putting together all 540 species of sharks described to date. And uh, even when you take into account all the cases where people are just beaten and uh, clearly survive, uh, you get uh, an average that can go from 70 per year to 140, maximum, something like that. So let's say, on average, about 100 people beaten by sharks per year, all over the world. And as you say, like these images that now we can get through that modern technology show to everybody, sharks care very little about humans. And in most cases, they don't care at all. One thing that is very interesting about cage diving, is that uh, we recently realized that, that uh, when you film the shark coming to the cage or to the bed around the boat, and then the shark leaves. Many times you stay one hour, two hours, three hours without any shark around. In most cases, uh, by filming with a drone, what's happening around the boat, you find that in many cases, the shark really don't leave, but stay in the area. You are curious animals; they stay around, you know? Just, they don't care about your boat, your cage, your divers. They don't come close because they don't care enough, you know? Yes, let's see if something special happens, but they already know that the bait is not used to actually feed them. I mean, if it's a good operator, the aim of the bait is just to attract the shark, not to feed the shark. So the anglers will do everything. So the shark is not going to take the bait. So they know that, and also they know that, again, if it's a good operator, the bait will be small, there will be very very little to known amount of muscles and fatty tissue to feed the shark, so like the head of a tuna or the gills of a tuna, something like that, so the shark is not really fed, even if he succeeded to take the bait. So the shark learn all this kind of stuff. They learn there's very little or nothing interesting for them, so they get used and they come less and less often to the boat. While people tend to think they are coming to the boat because they want to eat the people inside the cage, which is which is nonsense. Clearly you can still have some shark very interested in the cage. But this is very, very small minority of cases. Most of them just don't care. And you are praying the shark coming closer and closer, so you can take a decent a, 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 picture. But uh, to answer your question, because you see, I'm I'm uh, getting old. So when you ask me a question, I go in circle, <laughs> like the blue sharks before getting to the bait. You know? The circle becomes smaller and smaller. But come on. So the answer is that uh, I really believe that in most cases, uh, the fear was born with jobs. Because uh, clearly there were communities living in uh, areas where the crocodiles used to be common, where there used to be shark attacks or shark bites, uh, whatever you want to call them, and uh, they were used to this. So for example, we take an example, La Réunion Island, that's a French possession, you know, in the indian ocean so what happened is that a lot of people are very afraid of sharks there because some sharks specifically bull sharks and tiger shark may bite sometimes may kill people but uh, most of the people that have uh, this kind of reaction let's get rid of the shark we have the right to use the water we have the right to surf we have the right to swim This kind of attitude, uh, I think, is mostly from people that uh, uh, are actually from Europe, not from people that lived there for many, many generations. You know, they say the local people, the true local people, are used to the prisons of the shark. They consider this uh, a natural element of the area. When I first arrived in South Africa, when I first arrived in False Bay, uh, near Cape Town, one of the first things that uh, really let me very surprised was uh, how many people were using the water during the summer months in the same areas where we know the great whites were swimming. And I mean, there is like six months per year great whites stay very close to the shore. They share the exact same waters with surfers and people swimming etc. And uh, even when there were plenty of gratuites you had uh, about uh, one uh, attack per year. Most of them were not fatal. Which is statistically nothing. When you think to the thousands of people using the water every single day, every single day sharing these waters with many gratuites But people did it. Anyway, because they considered the shark a normal element of the environment. And they were thinking, okay, we are willing to take the risk. It's okay. I think that's a very clever attitude, very modern attitude. And uh, you see, so in the communities, in the places where great whites or other species, potentially dangerous sharks, used to live, people were not that afraid of sharks. This idea of the killer shark and man eater. I think that really was created, mainly by Jaws and by all the movies that were produced <laughs> later. So Sorry, Spielberg, it's your fault.
0: <laughs> Why do you think? I, I, I'm just fascinated that Jaws, this movie that came out in the '70s, still has this impact today. Yes. Why do you think that is? That it, that it, like it? I, I can I can think of almost no other movies. That influenced the culture, the way Jaws seems to have influenced the culture, and it, it's, you know, I, I don't know how a kid born in this millennium even knows about Jaws,
1: yeah.
0: right? And yet they do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think Star Wars uh, influenced the culture more than Jaws, <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm a big Star Wars fan, so I don't know. <laughs> let's say, let's say that uh, uh, clearly. One of the main reasons is that uh, Jaws, when it came out, uh, was the most successful movie ever, the most watched movie ever. Then clearly, Star Wars actually came out out two years later and then uh, it beat this record. But anyway, we must remember this. So uh, many of the people that watched Jaws when they were kids uh, are still alive uh, and a lot of people, contact me and they tell me, you know, I, I'm very interested in sharks or I'm attracted by sharks. But uh, I watched the Jaws when I was a kid, when I was young, and then I'm still afraid uh, of sharks. A lot of people. But, but uh, let's say that at the same time, uh, Jaws had uh, also a positive effect effect to get a lot of people interested in sharks. Not always in a bad way. But clearly, uh, yeah, yeah in most cases it was, it was actually in a bad way. But I think the other reason is that the uh, Jaws uh, didn't remain isolated. So, uh, was, there were uh, other three sequels. Clearly, sequels were not uh, as successful as the first one, but still the sequels kept alive Jaws and uh, what Jaws created. And then uh, so many Horrible movies. I, I mean, uh, uh, really low quality movies still produced nowadays. I hate them, you know. Let's <laughs> see that a lot of people, I, I mean, shock enthusiasts, love all of them. They are waiting every time one of these movies is advertised that it came out. Uh, I just love all these movies because they kind of transform the beautiful animal. In kind of a actor of a horror movie. This is what they did, you know. So, uh, I found pretty sad that only recently Spielberg came out to say, you know, I'm sorry because I understand that my movie had such a bad impact on sharks. But come on, come on. So many years later, while, for example, you know, that Peter Benchley that wrote the novel, Jaws, I, I read the, the novel. It wasn't good at all. My opinion, it was, it's one of the very few cases where the movie is actually much better than the book. Oh, but, so much better. But, but let's say that Peter Benchley, at least had the merit of doing a lot of stuff, uh, to help raising awareness about uh, the threat faced by sharks and to try to protect sharks and to change the mind of people because he understood many years ago that uh, it was a mistake. But anyway, I understand that uh, Spielberg didn't make the movie to build this uh, bad image of the shark. It just happened. Uh, Clearly, they they also... didn't have any idea that the movie was going to be so successful and people reacted in that way. But uh, I think that that's still the main reason. I mean, not only Jaws, but also all the movies that are still produced so many years later about uh, this image of a shark. And people, you know, people uh, like to be afraid. People like monsters, and people also like to create monsters in the media all the time keeping alive with this image. I mean, there are a lot of great journalists that make their job in the proper way and try to raise awareness about all the problems linked to the ecosystem, the shark conservation, etc. At the same time, you know that there are so many journalists that just don't care, so many media that just want to sell more copies and more clicks on their, their pages and so on we fear, still uh, sell very well. So I think it's very sad, but uh, we do our best to change this, this uh, situation, but it's difficult.
0: Can you talk about your expeditions? Like what happens on them? Where are they?
1: Okay. Thank you for the question. So I started to host uh, Great Shark Expeditions 14 years ago, and I started here in uh, South Africa. Uh, the reason why I decided to start here was because at the time uh, South Africa, and specifically False Bay, was the best place in the world to observe great whites. easily. I mean, the spot was so close to the shore, uh, just 25 minutes by boat, and it was the best spot uh, to observe the predatory behavior of sharks. Then, of course, uh, we were also lucky because uh, we have other oh, two spots not so far from here, Bay and Mossel Bay. So uh, if uh, sharks are not present in False Bay, if uh, there was a uh, bad uh, weather day or something like that, could still uh, change spots. You know, it's very lucky to have uh, three good spots close to each other. So it was uh, just uh, just a perfect situation. And uh, the thing that I like, was that uh, during these expeditions, uh, in the beginning were uh, five days, then six, seven days. uh, During these expeditions, I had uh, the proper uh, situation uh, to give uh, my courses in shark biology. So in the morning, going out to see the great whites and cage dine with them, observing them hunting the seals. uh, And then uh, during the afternoon, I was giving my lectures uh, to my guests in Italian, French, and English. It was just beautiful. It was a, it was a very beautiful situation. Then uh, I moved here uh, in South Africa uh, with my family from Italy, my wife and my kid, and uh, we are now living here for for the last uh, 11 years. seems so, so absurd, you know, <laughs> because time is passing so quickly. Uh, in 2014, I also started to host expeditions in South Australia, at the Neptune Islands funny thing is that I, in the beginning you asked me about uh, how my patient was born and uh, I mentioned that uh, Bruno Velati was filming that documentary with Rodney Fox. So uh, now since 2014 I work working for Rodney Fox in South Australia. It's just unbelievable. One of uh, my my childhood heroes you know uh, and now mostly for Andrew Fox who uh, is the son of, of Rodney. Rodney is now Tired, but uh, the expeditions we are running in uh, South Australia are very different from the expeditions in South Africa because the spot is not so close to that harbor. So there is a five hour trip to get uh, at the Neptune Island from Port Lincoln. And uh, so it's a cruise, basically. So we go out and we stay out four or five days at the Neptune Islands. We dive morning and afternoon. And I do my best to squeeze in all my lectures in my Italian, French, English, sometimes it's difficult, but it's uh, just unbelievable. With the best in the years, uh, I started to do my expedition also in Norway. Same thing, giving uh, lectures in Orca Biology in Norway, snorkeling with orcas in Norway. I did also one expedition in Guadalupe, Mexico. But you see, the situation has changed so much. Because uh, the the amount of betweys uh, has decreased so much in South Africa water. So if before I was uh, hosting uh, four, three trips per year, now it's more like two trips per year in uh, South Africa and uh, a couple of trips uh, in South Australia. South Australia, you know, it's different situation. If you go there, maybe the best period, but sometimes you don't get any white, or you get only a couple of them. But uh, if uh, it goes well, it is so much better than any other spot because if it goes well, you get so many gratuites, all sizes from small to very big. And those in Australia, they have the very special thing of surface cage plus the bottom cage. And as I said before, sometimes the gratuite is just not interested in your pot, your cage, your bait, and they stay far away, which may mean only staying on the bottom. So if you have a cage that goes down to the bottom, like we uh, uh, use in uh, South Australia, then it may explore a completely different world right? and uh, have many more gratuites sometimes. Sometimes you get maybe just one gratuite in the area, but it doesn't want to come to the surface. You go on the bottom and you get to the gratuite for four hours Circling the cage and giving all the cages we send down uh, the best moment of their life, you know. So it's very different approach when you use the two different types of cage. Do you have a favorite
0: interaction with a shark? A shark that you've you've really got to know well? I
1: think the best uh, moment. Uh, I, I, there are a couple, at least. <laughs> oh, there are. <laughs> okay, I'm thinking about. Difficult to decide. Uh, maybe three best moments. Okay. So one of the best moment, uh, was when I was alone in the surface cage in Australia. We had the beautiful blue water with about 30 meters visibility and the other divers were in the bottom cage. So I was alone in the surface cage because the bottom cage was just occupied. And they say, okay, let's go in the, in the surface cage. They were not using any bait at the moment. Uh, I thought nothing's going to happen, but maybe you never know. And I had uh, this beautiful four, uh, four, um, maybe 4.5 meter grid coming to the cage straight uh, and staying with me for one full hour around the cage, just uh, without any bait, just interested to come closer and giving me beautiful, beautiful shots with very little effort. Was just uh, like uh, an intimate moment with me in the great white, and uh, the <laughs> yeah. It was just a special. Another moment uh, was uh, uh, late afternoon again at the Neptune Islands, South Australia, in the bottom cage. The light was going down, so the pictures were getting grainy and more grainy. So I was I was struggling to put the proper setting. It was very dark. And uh, there was this special moment with many great whites around the cage, very large individuals, uh, all from four to five meters to something like that. Beautiful, coming so close, uh, and with this special light, it really looked like uh, a dream. And in that moment, uh, I remember that uh, many years before, I had a dream like that. Going in a cage, going down on the bottom, and see, many great whites, large individuals, exactly with that light. Maybe I dreamt about it. I don't know. But they really look like the same situation. And the third moment was actually not a moment, but a full expedition in South Africa, when we had uh, so many breaches uh, on the decoy, you know, the fake seal that sometimes we tow behind the boat, uh, but also the real seals. And we we saw something like 25 uh, predatory event. In a single on a single morning, it was just insane. I was shooting a picture of a great white breaching on the seal, and in the, in the background there was another one doing the same thing. <laughs> wow! I didn't know which one to put in focus. It was just unbelievable. When you think about it today, the number of great whites in the area curious so much; it's just uh, crazy insane. I think the biggest
0: surprise when we talked before was I had been reading all of the stories about the orcas attacking sharks in South Africa. And it sounds, if you read the media, like it initially sounded like there were hundreds of orcas doing this. And you told me that it was just two. It was port and starboard. Can you please share the story of port and starboard? And what was the deal with them taking out 17... I think it was 17 sharks in a day. Yeah.
1: yeah. What, what was that about? <laughs> yeah. That, uh, yeah. They were hunting bronze weather. And we also know that uh, they hunt uh, 70 sharks and sometimes they hunt also white. So, uh, you know, very well that uh, around the world, there are uh, different ecotypes of orcas, uh, different types of orcas. Then, and, uh, but we have some group of orcas that specialize in, in cartilaginous fishes sharks and rays but uh, they are not abundant and even when you look into these groups that focus on cartilaginous fishes on sharks and rays and you struggle to find the interaction between orcas and great whites you look at the records of orcas feeding on sharks you can find many species that have been observed to be prey of orcas like a treasure shark sandbar shark blue shark hemorrhage sharks, and so on. But when you look at the situation outside South Africa, how many cases of orcas attacking, killing, and feeding on Great White, you find in the entire world outside South Africa, two cases, one recorded in California, one recorded in South Australia, and that's it. And this you one very simple thing. Great whites are not uh, unusual unusual prey for orcas. They are very, very, very rare in the diet of orcas. And that's it. So, when you look at the situation in South Africa, do we have uh, other cases apart from uh, these two orcas, pouring starboard, other cases of orcas feeding on great white? The answer is no. So, let's say that in, a, in, a, in a period of time of about five years, we had the these two orcas killing uh, approximately 10 great whites. So that's uh, about uh, two great whites per year. That's very strange because uh, there, are, there are no other cases like this recorded ever. But at the same time, I'll tell you one very simple thing. Whatever is the reason that brought the orca, those two orcas to kill uh, different species of sharks, including this uh, couple of great whites per year, it's not uh, a common thing. It's not an ordinary thing. It's not uh, a natural thing. From my point of view, there have been some kind of uh, uh, behavior from humans that modified uh, the hunting uh, strategies and uh, the diet of these uh, two organs. That's my opinion. Maybe wrong, maybe right, but uh, the important thing is that uh, these two organs uh, are not represented of the diet of orcas around the world. So we cannot just uh, think that, uh, okay, orcas are destroying great whites, blah, blah, because that's nonsense. So the media told us basically from the beginning, these two orcas are destroying the population of great in South Africa. That's, that was the very clear message that people got. And I got so many messages from, from, uh, from uh, the audience, from, from uh, people interested in sharks and orcas from all over the world. What's happening? Uh, Is it true that there is no great white anymore because orcas killed all of them? This was the message from the very beginning. Even when great white still uh, used to be fairly common on some of the spots, you know? And uh, that's just wrong because clearly when you give scientific information, it must be scientific. So it must be presented in a proper way. Otherwise, uh, what's the sense? What's the meaning? Of offering scientific information to the audience, to the big audience. The reason why whites decreased so much over the years has nothing to do with orcas. So clearly, orcas can chase the whites away, meaning the whites are very clever animals. They have no natural predator. So if something kills them, they may leave the area. It happened also in Australia, it happened in California. Orcas which specialize in adding sharks arrived on the side. The great whites made it for a period, but they always come back. And uh, we must know also that uh, before these two orcas started uh, to kill uh, a few great whites, another species of sharks, uh, there were orcas in there already, usually coming uh, to False Bay, to Gasby, to Inshore Waters uh, around April, May, like every year. But these orcas were targeting dolphins. And that was the best period to see dolphins, big groups, you know, 500, 1000 dolphins, common dolphins, long, mostly long beaked common dolphins. And they were targeting the common dolphins. So on the same day, you could see great whites and orcas a few hundred meters from each other. They did not interact ever. <laughs> so. Uh, and you know how specialized can be the, the diet of orcas. So this makes perfectly sense. So it's not just about orcas, you know. But uh, the truth is that we uh, observed uh, the number of great whites decreasing year after year. Well before the two orcas arrived. Clearly, what happened is that uh, we already had the great whites decreasing, decreasing, decreasing. Because of fishing. Because of poaching because of fishing also on, of the prey of sharks. Because, for example, the white, uh, when it's below three meters length, uh, feed a lot on fish. And then uh, when he reached three meters, he just, uh, let's say, uh, take other prey too, like uh, marine mammals, like seals. Still eating sharks from time to time. But uh, let's say, uh, over the first years of his, of his life, uh, Smaller species of sharks are uh, especially important in their diet. So if I kill most small species of sharks in the area, clearly the sharks, the great white, uh, cannot find uh, its food anymore. Okay, so uh, we have all these problems. And also, we have no idea how many great whites are killed in the area, because we know there is uh, poaching, there is a lot of bycatch, There is a lot of unchecked fishery going on along the coast. We also observed several times fishing vessels, fishing in shore waters, fishing even inside the nature reserve. Nobody's checking. Or if they are checking, they are not checking enough. And uh, I think that uh, then it came COVID. uh, Things get even more complicated, but still uh, fishermen were going out. There was even less control. And then uh, the situation just uh, got worse and worse and worse year after year. In that uh, situation, the two orcas arrived uh, and changed the way the few great whites left. But uh, as I already said, if there are great whites, they always come back. So the, fa- the fact that uh, we have uh, very, very little great whites uh, at the moment uh, in uh, Gansby, just a little more great white, uh, in most. And then, uh, no great white, very, very few great white observed over the last few years in Bay. It just remained because it is sending out a very strong message. These animals are disappearing. And it's like happening before in other area. Take, for example, the Mediterranean Sea. Mediterranean Sea used to be a very important hotspot for great whites. It used to be common in Mediterranean Sea. Now, when they see one, it's like an event. And the same thing is going to happen in South African waters if uh, the authorities, if the government, don't do something real. Because having uh, the species protected on paper means absolutely nothing if there is no enforcement. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, we see that here where we have all sorts of laws that aren't enforced. Now, I just wanted to make sure that we mentioned your shark museum <laughs> Uh, so can you tell me all about your? Sh- Thank you so much. Can you tell me what the story of your shark museum?
1: Thank you so much. You know, when I was a kid, I used to build uh, little models of shark museums, <laughs> kiddies things. But uh, I had always this dream. I always uh, adored uh, natural history museums. When I had the, the chance, uh, I always studied, uh, you know, materials preserved in natural history museums. Uh, when I have to prepare uh, my Master of Science and Natural Sciences Thesis at the University of Milan, I chose to do it mainly based on uh, the findings, uh, the material of great whites uh, in the European Natural History Museums. And there is kind of a treasure because uh, at the end, uh, uh, when I continued my research of this kind of materials uh, in the entire Europe, after I finished my university studies, uh, at the end, I located uh, about uh, 120 uh, specimens of great whites uh, uh, in the Natural History Museum of uh, entire Europe. And then I wrote a book about the great whites preserved in the uh, United States Museum. So uh, I always had a very strong interest uh, in uh, museums. So uh, at the end of 2021, uh, we opened this tiny shark museum in Simonstown, Cape Town. And uh, I finally had the chance to make uh, come through my dream uh, of having my own shark museum. It's a tiny space. We have uh, just a very small exhibit, but I think it's a very cute space. And I see the people that uh, visiting, I enjoy it very much. And uh, the main thing is that uh, I use this space uh, to give talks, to give lectures about shark biology. So, to raise awareness about uh, how wonderful they are, uh, the fact that, that they are decreasing all over the world, uh, and uh talking the truth about uh, the decreasing of great whites in the South African waters, uh, but also about their diet, their anatomy, the different species you can find in these waters, and uh, sometimes talking about uh, other areas, like uh great whites in the Mediterranean Sea, the great whites in South Australia, and uh, sometimes I also invite uh, other speakers to speak about uh, other uh, topics related to marine biology or ichthyology or natural sciences in general. So, yeah, thank you for asking. I'm very happy about it. And it's also important because uh, when I'm hosting my Great speech on here in South Africa, I have the proper space to give my talks to the expedition guests.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing this and for all that you do for sharks.
1: Thank you so much for your beautiful work. I hope that uh, we are adding a chance to collaborate on more projects and with something beautiful together. My pleasure. I would love that.
0: Thanks again for checking out Scanner with Mark Lahren-Young. Please subscribe so you don't miss upcoming interviews with Howard Garrett on the story of Tokatai and the impact and legacy of orca expert Ken Balcom, Author David Schiffman on shark myths. Rowena Ray on the stories of salmon. Octo-experts Jennifer Mather and Donna Stoff on the ethical treatment of octopus. And please join our pod at patreon.com or Substack. Your support helps us pay for the tech and the people required to make this happen. And the more support we get, the more we can do. I'd like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Susie Venuda, Simon McNair, Robert Anderson, Solomon Siegel, and Joseph Wask. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers and my two books about sharks for younger readers, and our friends at Eagle Wing Canada. Please follow us on social media and share the show with your friends. And since we may no longer be on social media because of Canada's war with Google and other news scraping sites, share it with everyone. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. If this podcast didn't work for you, I'm spitting chiclets. Scana is stationed in Saanich, B.C., territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. Our executive producer, the always awesome Rainbow, the Scanna site, and so much more, Courtesy of our wizard of web, Katie Brown. Scanna's theme song, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. Audio awesomeness courtesy of Scanna's powerful new producer, Bug Lewis. Do it do it